There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Debunking Economics podcast, the first one of 2018 with Phil Dobby and Professor Steve Keen. And today, the Austrian School of Economics. What is it? And what does Steve think they've got right? And what have they got wrong? That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast. Now, the uh, Austrian School of Economics dates back to the 1870s when Karl Menger wrote the book The Principles of Economics. What an imaginative title that was. Who said the Austrians are incapable of any creative thought? Uh, was, it, uh, was, it, was it groundbreaking at the time? It's, it was part of a general push against the classical school of economics, and this is the, um, the political context for the formation of economic theory, because um, the previous classical school, which came out of Smith and Ricardo, argued that uh, effectively labour was the source of value. Uh, and what that means in effective terms is to say that the cost of something reflects, the price of something reflects its cost of production. Yeah. That was the fundamental basis. And they gave demand a secondary role. So they said uh, cost of production determines price, effectively demand determines quantity sold at that price. So there were two independent elements. And in general, what the neoclassical revolution did was to say, well, value is not objective, which is not, the, not based on the cost of production, it's based on the satisfaction the buyer gets from buying the product. And on the other side, the, the quantity, uh, the price is determined by changes in the relative marginal utilities of the buyer and the seller. So the seller is regarded as getting m- marginal utility from the products they're giving away. And therefore, each product that they, you know, each additional Model Ford T, Model C Ford that Henry, Henry Ford sold reduced the utility got from all the ones he currently owned. Uh, while the the purchasers on the other side were exchanging cash uh, up to uh, the point where the marginal benefit of the extra dollar was equivalent to the marginal satisfaction they got from buying uh, the Model T Ford from Henry, yeah, and 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 that's the basic picture that there's a a trade off. Um, first of all, the, the way that the Marshall sold the whole thing was to say that uh, it's not a case of um, demand supply determines cost and demand determines price. The two determined simultaneously like you know the blades of the scissor and that's one of those pervasive um um analogies that's stuck in the head of economists ever since a bit like the invisible hand the idea of the two scissors and the um so that's the general milieu but but, 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 the, but, the, beginning, yeah. but the beginning bit of that though the idea of uh, marginal utility the idea for example that uh, if I've got a, a sports car, I'm not going to be as satisfied with my second sports car because I don't need it as much as my first. Um, I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? Or if I've got, you know, if I've got an iPhone, I don't need another well, iPhone. That's, 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 that's why I was including the example of the Model T Ford mm. uh, because I defy anybody to believe that um, uh, the Model T Fords on the production line and in, in the um, car yards gave any utility to Henry Ford. Yeah. Um, in, in this, this is the case that Marx made to make the argument that uh, cost of production determines price rather than um, the, the uh, satisfaction of the buyer. He said that if you go back to early primitives, 
um, societies when you know when you had two Cro-Magnon tribes effectively meeting on the boundaries of their um, of their respective um, haunts. Um, one might be able to make, for example, white leather, and the other might be able to make uh, pottery, but one didn't know how the other did it. And in, in both cases, actually, I highly recommend for the, um, not, not the final volumes of the series, but I highly recommend reading the Clan of the Cave Bear series by Jean A-E-U-L, uh, starting off with uh, the Clan of the Cave Bear and then going through uh, the, you know, it, 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 fictional, but in terms of based on the history of the evolution of human society and human technology, uh, very well grounded in anthropological research. Um, this idea of one one tribe which learned how to make white leather. How do you make white leather? Simple. You piss on normal leather, and the uh, uric acid dissolves the colour, and you get white leather. Uh, how do you make pottery? You put clay, which you've already formed, into a object into a fire. Now, these can both be accidental discoveries in in each of the tribes. But what it means is one's got this nice fancy looking leather. The other's got pots that don't uh, that don't break uh, you know, straight away. Uh, that can be used multiple times right. and have a glaze on them and so on. And when you first do the exchange, neither party knows how the other produces it and marks it in that particular situation. The the utility that can be gained from the sale um, will be a major factor in determining the price. And the one group who's giving away some of its pots would have pots which are not surplus, but which ones which is being offered too good a price to refuse. So in that situation, the type of both sides having a change in utility made sense. Um, yeah, so the, the, the argument Marx made was that in it, as you started getting an established process of trade, then the utility for the seller, the decline in utility is no longer an issue because you're actually making, uh, specifically producing extra products for the same purpose of sale. You weren't producing them uh, for yourself and then giving them away to somebody else because you've got a better price. It was specifically produced for sale. And on the other side, um, the same thing applying for, for both products. So you ultimately got the cost of production or, or effort determining the, the price at which the ratio at which two, two products uh, exchanged. And in the early days, Mark said this was predominantly the amount of labor that went into them. So that was the, the classical school. And the neoclassical school, in a sense, ignores that argument and simply says, well, it's all about uh, maximizing utility. Now, that, that gives you two strands to neoclassical thought because one became the neoclassical school and the other became the Austrian school. And the major distinction between the two was that the Austrian school focused more on the process of innovation. So they would say that uh, you don't... Uh, you know, you don't want to reach the point where supply equals demand because that robs the economy of the uh, impetus that the entrepreneurs use to bring about new products. Right. So the whole creativity of capitalism, the Austrian school, comes out of the, the difference between the current level of demand and the current level of supply. And that disequilibrium um, opens up an opportunity for an entrepreneur to invent some new product. Uh, provides a you know, service in some different way, and that's what leads to innovation and change. So isn't so, that, isn't that a, a, bit, a bit between yeah. the two then? So, I mean, if um, – I, 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 excuse me if I've got this wrong, which I almost certainly have. But, I mean, oh, Ma- there you go. <laughs> but, Mark, <laughs> but you'll put me right. That's the great thing. But, I mean, Marx's argument was, you know, fundamentally, as you said, that, you know, the cost of production, which is largely the cost of labour, um, ultimately determines price after you've added the, you know, uh, the cream that the uh, – 
the entrepreneur is going to take out of it. Um, whereas the uh, neoclassic school is basically saying, well, people determine the price based on the utility they're going to get out of it. So, mm. you, so you're saying the Austrian school sits somewhere in between that, in, the, in that they're yeah, it saying... It does. I mean, the Austrian school, the neoclassical school turned this idea of the, of the scissors, you know, supply, the scissors of supply and demand into a, a point of um, effectively a target. You know, that's, that's where the economy tries to aim for this point where supply is equal to demand, and that's the maximum, uh, maximizes utility of, of producer and consumer, um, uh, it's the, the perfect position in terms of no exploitation if you don't have any monopolies or any trade unions. It's this effectively a world of an, a, a model of an anarchist world uh, where price uh, determines, mediates everything and there's no power and everybody receives their marginal product. So you all, you'll get paid what you deserve. So it's a meritocratic anarchist um, system and mediated by price and by money. And that's the, that's the vision that I think is locked into neoclassical brain cells. And as Janos Kornak points out brilliantly in his book, Anti-Equilibrium, um, the whole idea of equilibrium being a desirable state is a bit like saying, that's, that's a bit like saying the desirable marriage is between a, a, um, um, an impotent male and a, uh, and a sterile female, uh, because they'll never want to have sex. And therefore, they'll be in perfect equilibrium for the duration of their marriage. Well, no, I think um, I, I think you're yeah, quite the converse. They'll 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 want to. How exciting that, that is! <laughs> it's, 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 you're better having a form of dynamic tension, you know, where it explodes into 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 um, you know the, the goods and the bads of a relationship, the sexual highs and the and the other lows, and um, and that's the dynamism. They said that the, the, the ideal situation from Cornet's point of view is actually what he calls demand a uh, demand push, so that there's um, um, excess supply in the marketplace. There are too, too many producers competing to sell into the market, so they've all got excess capacity. And with that excess capacity, the way that they can try to secure additional sales is by innovating uh, in the in the general product range. So you come up with a, you know a, a phone with a better camera, and you take over from the competitors. So it's not price competition at all. It's innovation driven by. Um, a, a huge imbalance between demand and supply and what he called um, demand-constrained capitalist economies. So that's, uh, mm. in, in that sense, what the what the Austrians have latched onto is something like what Cornei, I think, is more intelligently identified as a tendency in a capitalist economy for uh, to be demand-constrained, have less demand than you have capacity to supply it, and that's what gives you the force for innovation, which is a non-equilibrium force. The Austrians did a similar thing. They said, with, um, you know, the, you, yes, okay, this is the point of, the point of uh, gravity of the market system is where supply is equal to demand, but because of uh, you know, exogenous shocks and evolutionary change over time, you'll always be at a gap between the two, and then the gap will give the open, opening for an entrepreneur to innovate and develop a new product, and that's what gives you growth in capitalism. So in that sense, I see the... Austrians are sharing what I see as a flawed theory of value, the argument that utility determines price. And I think that, uh, well, I, I've done now, now I go back to an energy basis, as, it, as you know. It, yeah, but it does um, it, but it does, it, 
It does in part uh, relate to the utility, though. The price does relate to utility, doesn't it? Because in that example, I'm getting more utility from a from a new phone. I'm getting more value out of a new phone mm. with new, with more functions, and therefore I'm willing to pay a higher price. And then there's well, the- Knox would agree with you. This is the thing. Knox is quite happy to say, and does quite literally say at one point that uh, as it occurs to trade, it's quite sensible to say that trade is an activity out of which both parties gain in utility. Right. So he's quite happy to say it happens, but he says it doesn't set the the long run price and but it, but what if but the price is not in that instance is not necessarily related to the cost i mean you might have an innovative new phone that costs less than the the previous phone and then we've also got you know the uh, you know that old diamond water paradox water is very valuable yeah, the, diamond, diamonds are what, what, di- diamonds are what, not valuable but we pay a fortune for them well, what Marx comes down to again is saying it's the relative effort of, of getting the diamonds versus getting the water if you're in the uk um, whether you want it or not, you got water. Mm. Um, if you're if you're um, in, in the UK, whether you want diamonds, you've got to you know send off an expedition to Zambia and establish a few uh, <laughs> ch- child slave labour camps to to mine the mine the diamonds and send them back to your right. to your floozies. Sure. So, um, but diamonds, but you know, a century ago, diamonds weren't that valuable. The reason why diamonds have become valuable is because of marketing, by and large. You know, it's been we've been told that diamonds are a girl's best friend. Uh, they became mm-hmm. immensely popular. They went up in value. I mean. I'm sure there's other precious yeah, stones. Which but Max's actually- point is that determines the level of demand that applies for them. The cost of actually selling them comes down to, uh, you know, he's not looking at, in a sense of it, monopolies like De Beers and things like that, manipulating the market so much. But saying predominantly, in for most reproducible items, and this is the difference, the diamond is not, uh, well, not until modern times, reproducible. So we have a, a theory of, of price setting, which... Um, if you imagine, like, uh, what's the price you put on a Picasso painting versus what the price you put on a um, on, on somebody painting your room? Uh, for Picasso to paint something for you, you'll pay a fortune uh, for it because it's 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 unique; it can't be reproduced. Um, and in some ways, the the theory of value that the neoclassicals ran with, and the Austrians as well, is one based on unique, non-reproducible products. Now, Marx's point was that capitalism is fundamentally a system of mass production and therefore um, those utility uh, elements that apply to things which you can't produce um, is a, a separate division. And Ricardo had exactly the same argument. Ricardo has also said that um, the setting of price of, of unique, uh, he actually mentioned fine wines, but Ricardo clearly enjoyed his wine, whether it came from Portugal or not. But he said the price of fine wines and fine paintings bears no relation to their cost of production. Uh, but these are because they are non-reproducible, whereas the, the, the stuff you want to focus upon is, is mass production goods. And in that situation, the cost of production will determine the price level. So the demand will determine well, the volume sold. Right. Okay. Well, let's let's just so I'm totally across this. Then take me through what the Austrian school philosophy would be, and uh, and let's take the Marx philosophy. If we go back to that mobile phone, I've devised a mobile phone that's cheaper to produce than any existing mobile phone, and it's got a camera on it that makes everyone, even you, Steve Keen. Look, han- mm. look handsome. And yeah, everyone cool. wants to get hold of, as you can imagine, <laughs> it's never going to happen, mm. but everyone wants to get hold of this phone. It completely corners the market. No one else can sell a, a mobile phone. What happens next? Then you have a, a, a total reorganisation of the industry. You get a new uh, monster firm being developed out of a new Nokia in, in that sense. And the early adopters are quite happy to pay a high price for it. And this is um, areas in which I see the Austrian 
concepts of having some relevance because when you have a, a new innovation like that, the people who are willing to line up around the block to buy the camera when it first go on, come, comes on sale, the camera phone, uh, are willing to pay a price far beyond its reproduction price, but it certainly is partly what helps the firm cover its development price. Right. So then in that sense, the Austrian um, attitude to how prices are set, which they apply to everything, uh, has relevance to new things, but not to the price of, uh, you know, a slab of, of iron and a slab of steel to go up in the frame of the, of the next uh, industrial uh, development that's being done in, you know, in McLean, for example, or using me when I'm actually financing myself. Um, this is, those, those sorts of things are set by the cost of production. And the Austrian, uh, the Austrian argument instead sits at the very centre as if the utility of, you know, masses and masses of tonnes of iron and steel determine the price paid for that iron and steel rather than the, the amount of, uh, you know, coal and, and, and raw materials and energy you've got to buy to pump that stuff through the production process and produce the slabs. Right, but the Karl Marx approach to that to the to my new phone would be that after that initial rally of, uh, of people paying being prepared to pay more, mm. it would eventually settle down to a price which is pretty close to the the cost of production plus, yeah. plus profit. Yeah, because yeah. now this what my my approach to Marx is very different to um, Marxists. I have more enemies in the Marxist camp than I have in the neoclassical, I'd say. Um, but what my approach to Marx is that Marx starts with a theory of value that says that there's a, um, a gap between the use value and the exchange value of a product. Um, you, you buy something for its use value, you pay its exchange value to buy that product, and that's the source of capacity for a capitalist to make a profit. Uh, because he says workers, capitalist hires workers at their cost of production, which is subsistence wage, uh, exploits their use value, which is the capacity to produce goods for sale. And that's the gap between the two gives you a source, one of the sources of surplus. Yep. Now, I then use that to, to generalise it and say, first of all, you've got to start with energy as a starting point because that's, that's the stuff we're really mining to produce any goods whatsoever. Secondly, labour and capital ways harnessing that and Marx's argument gives you an explanation for how he can make a profit out of um, producing commodities and, and selling them and selling them. But then you go to an, another scale beyond that where you start looking at money as both a commodity and a non-commodity and then you have new products which themselves are both commodities and non-commodities because that new iPhone you've just invented uh, is produced by using commodities, but it itself is not part of a production system. So, whereas if you give it ten years' time, and that thing is like the you know, the iPhone everybody shoves into a, a speaker bay at their coffee shop, um, then the actual uh, iPhone is both produced by and used to produce other commodities, and its cost structure falls back to that largely cost of production determined. Foundation. We've got a long way from the Austrians, by the way. I think it might have no, no. Well, I would, I would, yeah, well, I was gonna, but I was going to ask you next about going back to my mobile phone, then, because I understand that. But yeah. what would the Austrian approach be? What would they? They'd say well, that we are. You're not. They gonna would re- say entirely. It's it's subjective utility of the product, right. uh, determining the price, and they, it stays that way indefinitely. So if the price falls over time, it's because people are regarding it having a lower level of utility. Uh, they, they wouldn't try to quantify the utility in the same way the neoclassicals do, but they use um, variations in utility as fundamentally the basis of seeing where value comes from. And 
they also see um, this tendency towards equilibrium, but not quite getting there. And therefore, rather than being stuck on the point of intersection, you're orbiting around it. And that's what sort of the orbiting around the equilibrium point gives you the, the dynamism of capitalism. Well, I mean, that, I mean, and that sort of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, the idea of not reaching equilibrium certainly makes sense, because in that in that example, by the time you've, you've got to a point where someone might say, this is where we're heading, someone else is going to come along with another firm, which makes you look even more handsome. Um, yeah, and, there you go. And uh, as if that's Maybe possible. Maybe looking at school lobby. <laughs> exactly. I mean, uh, then then there's obviously no point of return beyond that. Mm. But um, I mean, and so that and that gets back to the innovation that you were you were talking about. Well, that kind yeah, of kind of makes sense, that, that, doesn't that it? That is a reasonable. Saying, what I'm saying, it's a reasonable um, explanation for the pricing of new products. Uh, it is it, it is not something that. Uh, I think, as I argued when we spoke about energy earlier, you have to start from a theory of value that's consistent with the laws of thermodynamics. Yeah. Now, on that front, the labor theory of value is wrong, as is the, the neoclassical theory. But the Austrian but, school, the Austrian school came out with the idea of opportunity cost. That if you're going to do something, you're doing it yeah. at the expense of something else. So that that sort of takes care yeah. of that energy argument, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. Not at all, because um, the thermodynamic argument pretty much says that you can only um, produce you can't produce more value than you find initially. Uh, you've got to be mining and mining a, a subset of the value that you find in the real world. So you know, the energy source, we, if we find a, a lava, um, uh, you know, a, a river of lava flowing nearby with a burning, a burning tree attached to it, and we grab one of the, the branches of the burning tree and use that to light additional fires, um, we have... Um, produce, in a sense, output of energy uh, for for the sake of cooking, but we necessarily have waste energy as well. So we're mining it. Mm. And then after that, once you've mined it, once you've turned that free energy into a product, um, then you can uh, talk about increasing the utility of other products later, et cetera, et cetera. But the fundamental starting point must be an objective theory of value, whereas the Austrians start with a subjective theory. And that's the major reason that I say, even though I, I like some of the ways they um, try to understand how technological change occurs, they're not, um, at the core, they're not understanding capitalism itself. So what about uh, the role of the state in all of this? So, uh, for example, the role of of interest rates. I mean, the conventional belief is that central banks, you know, manage interest rates to ensure there's enough liquidity in the the economy. In other words, they're, you know, they're busy manipulating the money supply. Is that how the Austrian school sees it as well? No, that's where that's another point where there are a point of divergence with the neoclassicals, because the neoclassicals, particularly the ones who started to believe these DSGE models describe the real world. They really thought that they they actually included the central bank as part of the mechanism for stabilising the overall economy. The Austrian school yeah, does. Yeah, no, no, no the neoclassical. The, the, yeah. the, the Austrians said, well, there's actually a thing called the natural rate of interest, and here again, even though they pursue equilibrium concepts, they, they permeate their thinking at the same time. So they, so they believe that the market itself will set a natural rate of interest reflecting the you know, the, the, the interaction of, of investment, demand for investment funds and supply of, of loanable funds. That's very much their vision of money. Uh, that will set a natural rate of interest. And if the government tries to keep the actual rate of interest below that using central bank powers, then that will cause an artificial boom because investments that wouldn't otherwise be undertaken will be undertaken because the actual rate is below the natural rate. That will give you a boom, which will drive up asset prices, 
and um, lead to rising levels of debt as well. And then you'll have to have a crisis at some point because you can't sustain that overvaluation. And so the boom leads to the bust and they blame the, they blame the 2008 crisis on the Federal Reserve setting the interest rate too low between 2000 and 2007. So they end up being very critical of the, the Federal Reserve, blaming the Federal Reserve for causing the crises. Uh, but they also, of course, when the, when the Federal Reserve got involved in QE, a lot of Austrian predictions were for massive inflation because their model of money creation, again, they share with ne- the neoclassicals, the idea of the money multiplier. So if you mm. if you produce an extra trillion dollars worth of reserves every year and the money, money multiplier is, is a factor of 10, which is the literal value of the American money multiplier, though it's not, in, in practice it's far, far lower, actually far, far higher than that. Um, but with that that ratio, the trillion dollars of, of QE each year should have caused $10 trillion more worth of money inside the economy, and that should have caused massive inflation, which, of course, hasn't happened. Yeah. So there are areas in which their theories of money are quite naive, um, as naive, even more naive in some ways than the neoclassical theories of money. And that's what leads them astray in trying to understand the aftermath of the 2008 crisis. But they are so. Are they so? They're less interventionalist though than the. Sorry, they're more interventionalist than the. Than, than uh, obviously less than Keynesian no, economics, but more. No, 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 they're not more. Actually, even less interventionist. They what they say when there's a boom and there should be a bust afterwards, and trying to prevent the bust actually um, makes the bust last longer. Right. So they're in favour. They're in favour of liquidation during the Great Depression. I thought that if we simply, <coughs> pardon me, <coughs> if we simply write the debts off, um, and the companies that you know that um, have um, debtors that can't pay them, then they go bankrupt as well. Let the chain reaction wash through, clean out the system. We can start all over again, and um, and that's still the attitude they have towards the uh, the financial crisis as well, which of course gives them a certain street cred compared to the actions of the central bank, which have actually rescued the bankers and enabled fraudulent behaviour to reassert itself very soon after the last bubble. Yeah, uh, that's an easy one to win, isn't it, with the populace? Uh, <laughs> yeah. We're not going to rescue the banks. So I, I, I'm sort of sensing as well, and I, I mean, I could be wrong on this, but I mean, no. is, the, is the Austrian, you're, look, enough of your sarcasm, is the Austrian school... <laughs> It seems like it's 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 prepared to move in a direction where it's it's open to a more complex understanding of the economy. So for so for example, when we were talking about utility, I mean they you know the uh, neoclassic economics seems to suggest that we all get the same value out of everything, whereas the Austrian school, I think, breaks it apart a bit more and says, well, yeah, if you're a multimillionaire, you're going to get less utility than somebody who's who's uh, who's poor, for example. Uh, and so, you know, you start to see, you know, rather than aggregating, disaggregating, and that obviously moves to the opportunity to develop more sophisticated models on the economy. Is that where the Austrian school is heading? That is a possibility, but it's also stimulated by their, their opposition to mathematical methods. Now, this varies quite radically between one Austrian and another. So if you look at Hayek, who was the, uh, the foundational Austrian in that sense in popularising the Austrian views at the same time as Keynes was uh, dominating the profession, Hayek uh, was anti-mathematics, but he was anti-mathematics because he said capitalism is a complex system and it's too complicated to be captured in a set of equations. However, as he wrote in his Nobel Prize speech, at some time in the future it's possible our methods may improve to the stage where we can mathematically model the instability of capitalism. Mm. Now, in fact, at the time he wrote, 
um, which we're talking much the same time that Lorenz discovered complex systems. What we then realized was it isn't a case of a complicated system giving a complex behavior. It's quite a simple system can give you complex behavior. Um, it's the interaction between elements of the system that cause the complexity. So uh, I think Hayek, had, you know, had he lived long enough to see complex systems mathematics applied, might have thought this could be interesting to apply to the economy as well. But in general, the anti-mathematical attitude that Austrians have means they refuse to do statistics, they refuse to test theories, they, they can all be worked out by introspection, and they end up not doing a large amount of empirical work, which um, in that sense will always make them part of the fringe because uh, if you're seeing economists as fundamentally serving what politicians need, politicians need people who can read chicken entrails, uh, we call them economists these days. We used to call them witch doctors, um, but they want to be, provide a set of numbers. And the Austrians refusing to provide those numbers, they're always, they're always going to be on the periphery of the mainstream uh, markets and in, in, in libertarian circles. But they won't um, have much effect on the um, on the core of the economics profession. So if we listen to Hayek and we, you know, uh, we uh, and if the whole of the Austrian school went down that road of saying, yes, we understand this is a complex system, they also uh, don't believe in the role of equilibrium. They understand there's a role of banks, which uh, which interferes. No, they, or, they misunderstand it, but they talk about the role well, of banks. Okay, but at least they recognize there's a role to be played there. I mean, yeah. in those three things, they, they sound like they're following your line of reasoning. So where, where's, the yeah, diverg- I mean, where's the divergence between you yeah. and the Austrian school? This, this is actually intriguing because a lot of Austrians, you know, almost identify me as one of them mm. and sort of you know want me to be more on their side and it just come down to these foundational aspects of my approach to economics which is starting with an objective theory of value and then believing you have um, higher levels of analysis where the subjective valuations come in this is my you know, dialectical interpretation of marx which i'll be detailing when i finally get writing about my big book which i'm going to be calling principles of political economy um, to take it right back to the to the um, physiocrats and say that's where we should have started and then to pull out of what was the detritus of the classical school is what was worth um, worth carrying on with there and up, eventually up to complex complex systems economics. But that will slot the Austrians, if you like, into the, if I have like six or seven levels of heaven in terms of the um, interrelation between these various dialectical components of my theory of value, they're in the sixth or seventh iteration. They're important when it looks at the, when you look at the pricing of new products um, and, and the process that drives innovation. But they're not your core um, understanding of how capitalism actually generates surplus goods and then turns that into, into uh, accumulation of wealth by, by capitalists. They're, they're not uh, the ones who are going to explain that to you. So uh, okay, so that's so it's, I'm I'm still grasping at what the what the fundamental difference is then between the Austrian school. Well, and, yeah, yeah. Where they? I, I guess Austrian in a nutshell, school. where have they gone wrong? They've gone wrong by making everything subjective, which is the same mistake the neoclassicals made. Um, starting with this totally subjective theory of value it becomes incredibly difficult to add your utility to my utility, and the neoclassicals simply fudge that by. Uh, is bringing up fictions like the representative agent, where they say this representative agent has the demand characteristics of the entire economy. So we can represent the entire economy as one individual. That is actually a cop-out because most neoclassicals simply aren't conscious of this problem because the actual 
derivation of the representative Asian was because of the failure to be able to aggregate from two individuals with different tastes consuming commodities which had different characteristics. The aggregate not just that the consumers were the same, but also that the products were the same. Well, that's that's proof by contradiction that they couldn't add these things together. Um, so that's where the neoclassicals got to with the subjective theory of value. What the neo, what the Austrian institution, in one sense, is more legitimate is refuse to add up in the first place. Mm. Refuse to say you can actually add these bits together, but they still think in terms of an aggregate market, in, you know, aggregating to the stage of market supply and market demand curves. So they, they fudge the mathematics rather than actually executing it in the first instance. But fundamentally, you cannot add up from a subjective theory of value. You, you can, if you're going to be able to add things together, uh, then you have to start with an objective theory of value. Right. Okay, kind of makes sense. It, it almost getting hairy here. It's yeah. it's it, 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 it's 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 almost as though they're sort of like saying, "Well, look, we understand that uh, things aren't working uh, the way the neoclassicals believe, uh, and uh, it's more complicated than that." But uh, bugger if I know how we uh, how we solve that one. Yeah, that wouldn't be a bad summary of my summary of how how the Austrians <laughs> actually behave. Um, you know, um, so and that's like one reason why I won't. You know, I'll identify with some elements of their thought, but I certainly won't regard myself as an Austrian. Um, but I regard people like Schumpeter, for example, and Schumpeter is Austrian, um, would can be seriously regarded as part of their school because he actually built a disequilibrium analysis of capitalism, which I regard as extremely valuable. Um, so uh, there are elements of the Austrian thought mainly manifested in Schumpeter uh, that I think are very, very valuable for forming a a decent new economics. But of course, ironically, Schumpeter is generally speaking not regarded as an Austrian by the Austrians because he actually was a government minister for a while and they see him as having sold out to to uh, socialism in one of his final books, which to me was actually simply reading the book uh, when I first read it back in 1972. I could didn't see anybody was fussed with Schumpeter. So it's called Socialism, Capitalism and Democracy. And I thought it was such a wanky book I didn't take Schumpeter seriously until I read him again uh, in the theory of capitalist development in the late 1990s. And then I thought this is a seriously sophisticated piece of thinking. But that earlier book, which a lot of the Austrians deride Schumpeter for, I think was his superannuation fund. I think he wanted a popular book to make a nice lot of money so he could retire comfortably and continue doing the three things he wanted to be best at in the world, which were to be the world's best economist, the world's best uh, lover and the world's best horse rider. Well, there we are. How's your horse riding coming along? Uh, as good as the other two. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you about the other two. Uh, certainly not the middle one. All right. Well, uh, well, you've taken us some way on the Austrian school. That's good. I'm sure we'll come back and revisit this. Great to talk, Steve. I think we'll have to, but yeah, yeah. Interesting start. And that is the beauty, isn't it? These uh, long conversations, we've got plenty of time to explore all sorts of stuff. Now, next time, GDP. Uh, it's generally the measure that we use for the wealth of a country or GDP per capita. But does it work in practice? Is there a better measure uh, of measuring the wealth or the comparative wealth? or the wealth over time uh, of countries around the world. We'll look at that next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. 
Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.